This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, back around 100 years ago, before the pandemic, early March, I think it was, a different world, we interviewed Morning Ireland presenter and best-selling author Rachel English about her latest novel, Paper Bracelet. And she was great, as always. It did mean, sort of, lead to a situation where I did have to, you know, bring my colleagues together and say, now, I swear I'm not making this up. (laughs) But thing is, I wrote this book and I was going to tell you about it and then I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. But anyway, there'll be, there'll be, a, there'll be a thing in the paper tomorrow <laughs> about it. And we are going to finally bring you that pre-pandemic conversation today. I have to say the paper bracelet is a great read, something to bring on your staycation wherever you might be going, if you're lucky enough to have somewhere to go. And I really hope you are. I am dying to go to the west of Ireland with my mum and swim in the sea. And oh, my God. Anyway. It's the simple things, isn't it? The simple things you miss. But before I bring you that chat with Rachel English, I wanted to let you know some news from the webinar on mental health and domestic violence in lockdown that was run by the National Women's Council of Ireland and St. Patrick's. And you'll remember last week, we had two women on telling us about why the mental health of women was being particularly affected during the pandemic. Um, So I wanted to let you know some of the very important things that have come out of that webinar on Friday. There was a very good report in the examiner about it, which said that at the webinar, uh, it emerged from somebody speaking at it that the Irish courts are not fit for purpose when dealing with violence against women. And that came from an expert on gender based violence. So what was said was that the legal process here often re-traumatises victims, locking them into archaic systems, blind to the subtleties of coercive control. Um, The Istanbul Convention was ratified in Ireland last year and is supposed to prevent and combat violence against women, gives a sort of a roadmap towards a safer world for women. But those measures uh, had not yet filtered through into domestic laws and practices. And that was said by Dubravka Simonovic, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women. She said the criminal justice system currently lacks the laws and procedures to adequately deal with the rape and sexual violence women are experiencing during lockdown. And Simonovic has been gathering um, data on femicide since 2015. And she has shown that 80% of people killed in an intimate partner relationship are women. 
and she mused and wondered at the end of this year, are we going to look at those statistics and will those numbers of women killed by intimate partners have increased? And of course, as you know, or might not know, in the UK, they've actually found that that's exactly right. Already this year, the numbers of women killed by intimate partners has increased. So it's very likely that we are going to find the same here after lockdown. Now, sexual violence and rape have been a particularly harrowing issue for many women throughout lockdown. But these are crimes that are not often seen in the context of domestic abuse. And that was said by Nolene Blackwell of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Uh, There was also talk about a report that had been promised by the Department of Justice examining how victims are treated within the criminal justice system. And that report is two years overdue. And meanwhile, victims of sexual and gender based violence have had to grapple with a system that's not designed to support them. And Nolan Blackwell said we have a duty to protect and promote people's rights to live without sexual violence and to ensure that they have access to justice and support if they do. Also speaking at the webinar was Mary Louise Lynch, who is a founder of Survivors Informing Services and Institutions, which is a domestic and sexual violence project. And she said that many women continue to be abused post-separation due to a system that doesn't accept coercive control or doesn't understand it and the complexities of abuse. Now, we've spoken on this podcast before how coercive control is now illegal and those laws are, are in place but it's very new. And and Mary Louise Lynch was saying that the system just doesn't recognise it post separations. Uh, she said courts and children are often manipulated by abusers to continue to exert control post separation. And this has led to women feeling forced to put photos of their rapist up in their house or risk being accused of alienating their child's father, she said, which is just horrific. And one woman that they surveyed recently found that her ex-partner was coming back to Ireland from the UK throughout lockdown every three weeks to visit their child. I mean, which is just outrageous on so many levels. Um, And this woman is terrified when she has to meet him in a deserted car park during lockdown to hand over their child who he has taken to stay in a packed hostel, a refugee hostel during the pandemic. I mean, it's just incredible what women are going through and the stories that we're not hearing, which is why this webinar was so important. Sarah Benson of Women's Age, who's been on this podcast talking about the subject, said that COVID-19 has been the perfect storm for people for whom home is not a safe space. The service has received uh, spiking calls from March to May with, um, I think it's really nice of Sarah Benson. She calls these people ingenious survivors, but it's just horrific. Ingenious survivors calling from sheds, cars and in the middle of the night to get through without being overheard. But Miss Benson said that she's worried about those who cannot call. I mean, when this is all over, I really do hope we hear about these things and we hear every story of every woman who had to go out into a shed or a car in the middle of the night to try and get help because this is all going on and we're dealing with the things that we see in front of us, you know, worrying about various issues and we all have things to worry about. But I just can't, I just all through this lockdown, I've been thinking of those women in their houses, stuck with somebody or dealing with someone who they finally got rid of, but who's still hassling them through through the lockdown. Um, anyway, it's an issue we've covered extensively on the podcast and we will be coming back to it. And just to remind you, in case you're struggling with any of these issues or if you know somebody who is, the Gardaí are on red alert for all of this and you really should call them with any concerns and also get reach out to people like Women's Aid 
or the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Don't go through this alone. Tell your friends not to go through this alone. Get help. Try and get justice, even if, as the webinar showed, justice is often not served in so many of these cases. And that's why we have to keep talking about it and highlighting it. Now, Rachel English is an Irish broadcaster and writer. She's currently the host of Morning Ireland on RTE from 7am to 9am, which she began hosting in 2010. She has done loads of things in RTE where she's worked for 30 years. She presented 5-7 Live for six years and other radio shows like the RTE News at One, Today with Pat Kenny, The Marion Finucane Show, The Late Debate. She's part-time now on Morning Ireland, which gives loads of time for her other career as a novelist. And she came into the Irish Times studio. I wonder, will we ever be back there again in pre-pandemic times? And since then, we just never got the chance to put this conversation out. So we're fixing that now. We were talking about Rachel's fifth book, The Paper Bracelet, which is centred around the mysteries and tragedies of a mother and baby home in the west of Ireland. It's a gripping read and really interesting in terms of how the state treated women back then and all those consequences for the lives of so many women and their babies, now grown-ups obviously, that are still echoing today. It was a great chat and here she is, Rachel English. You have an uncanny knack of putting out novels that somehow chime with what's going on in Irish society. And you've done it before with American Girl, but this latest one, The Paper Bracelet, continues that story of these mother and baby homes in Ireland that everyone is still grappling with and we're still trying to uncover and untangle the truth about it. Why did you return to that subject? Um, I suppose it's the question you always ask yourself, why this story? And after I wrote The American Girl, I think I had intended to return to the story at some stage, if only in the sense that I kind of felt, well, if if I wrote it again, I'd write a better book. And I know there are a lot of stories. And it's funny, I read this quote the other day and I have to re-quote it. It's from <laughs> Anne Enright and it's so good. Oh, she's eminently quotable. Yeah, she said, we're very fortunate to have Ireland to write about. It's a great resource. True. And... <laughs> You know, you would probably say the same if you came from Mexico or Nigeria or Croatia or wherever. But the country, you know, you do start to see as a resource in terms of the stories that are there. And I went ahead and I wrote another book called The Night of the Party. And then I wrote maybe about 15,000 words of another book. But I found that all the ideas I was having, they all went back to this story, every little snatch. And I found that I, I found that I was, you know, printing out stuff that I saw or I was tearing a thing out of a newspaper and think and putting them. I have a box and thinking I'll return to that box one day. And in the end, I had this this kind of straightforward idea about this Katie character who essentially, you know, a woman who worked in a mother and baby home who 50 years later, after the death of her husband, decides that she can do something to help the people, the women and their children who were in the home when she was there. And that she kind of becomes a detective like figure and that she she has an assistant in her niece. And I went to my editor And I said, what do you think? Actually, no, first of all, I went to my husband, who's great because he never gets carried away with stuff. (laughs) Like, do you know, he he was dispassionate and who would say, yeah, it's okay." But in this instance, he said, oh, you've got to write that. So then I went to Kira, um, Considine, my editor, and she said, 
oh, I think you should write that. Are you very far in the other one? And I said, no, not that far. And she said, oh, just just abandon it. And uh, so that's what I did. So you had two voices saying you've got, you're onto a good thing. And it's true, even reading the blurb at the back of the paper bracelet and then when you get into it, there's something about a very clear mission that this woman is on and she has these paper bracelets from the time in the, in the mother and baby home and she's basically trying to trace some of the babies that were there and try and reunite them. Sort of Miss Marpley kind of... Uh, yeah, that's 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 how I I see her and I, there is a reference to that at one stage because, and which gives her an opportunity to say, no, 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 A, I'm a lot younger than Miss Marple. <laughs> um, and oh, actually, just uh, just on a kind of a, on a tangent to that, I did want as well to write about an older woman who's not seen as being... Helpless, behind the times, um, computer illiterate, um, because that's not the way older women are now. And all of us, I do it myself, we still tend to fall back into the cliches that, you know, if somebody is in their, their Katie turns 70 during the course of the book, that, that they're going to be in some way tuned out. Of, of daily life. And she's not like that at all. And, and I wanted to write a character like that because as well because I'd seen several people complaining that they felt that older women in particular are, tend to be badly represented in a lot of fiction as well. And oh, hmm. such a rich seam as well. And like you say, I mean, my mother's 80 something, well, she'll be 81 in August and she's on Twitter and she's, uh, you know, this woman in your book, she's researching everything. If she doesn't know something, she just gets onto Google yeah. and finds out about it. So the idea that you get past a certain age and you're suddenly stagnate is really insulting, I think. It is. And I think we've also seen in recent times um, through the referendums or whatever that a lot of older people are very open-minded, far more so than sometimes the caricature would have it, both men and women. And we saw that in the referendums too, where people, you know, had discussions in their family and, you know, as has been said by plenty of people, that the, the two referendums, one of the reasons they passed by such comprehensive margins was because of the fact that in both cases, so many older people voted yes. They weren't stuck in a view of Ireland 50 years ago. And they were also willing to say that, well, even if personally I might be a little wary of something, I recognise having spoken to people that this is probably the right thing to do. And and I found a lot, when you heard people talking like that, I found a lot of that very touching. And um, yeah, so so I was anxious that there be an older character who, yeah, who, like you say, is is just just wants to go out there and and do some good. And the last thing she wants to be is stuck at home mourning her husband. On that subject, um, I just really agree with what you said there. Um, I think people forget as well that these people have lived through all these things, you know, mm. all through these X cases and, you know, all the different things. And they've seen how people have been affected and they've had loved ones and relations. So, they, you know, they have a big wealth of experience, of life experience that younger people, OK, they can see the injustice, but they haven't necessarily had to grapple with it. Whereas these older people had and they made that decision, you know, to say in the case of the Eighth Amendment to say, I don't think that works. Yeah. Um, and again, we shouldn't uh, sort of discount views because they're, you know, of a certain age. Yeah. Um, and, and in either way, I'm sure there were people also who voted no in the re- in either of the referendums, but that didn't mean that they didn't think a great deal about it. And I think the evidence was that, that people did. Um, because the amount of people who I spoke to who said, 
well, we had a row at home over it, or actually we had a really nice discussion when I was at home at the weekend. You know, it, it um, so yeah, I think it's, it is, I think it's easy sometimes for us here to maybe take on stereotypes from abroad about older people. You know, this OK Boomer thing. Oh, I do. I was OK Boomer to the day. I'm not even a boomer. I was disgusted. <laughs> I, I found myself actually a few weeks ago saying to somebody on Twitter, Generation X, actually. Yeah, I but, saw you do that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I think those are categories that aren't always very helpful here because I think if like your mother or my parents you grew up in Ireland in the 1950s I don't think your life was any better roses and um, you know an awful lot of people either left the country or had a pretty hard time of it and um, so yeah I was kind of anxious ever before all, all, all of that and I think most younger people as well don't think in such black and white terms you know they do have families it actually brings up something else I'm interested in uh, you know in RTE there's very strict and for very good reasons um, why you can't give opinions about things because you're on Morning Ireland mm. and you've been there for a long time and well used to it I imagine just sitting on the fence very much for a lot yeah. of things because your listeners need to know that you're impartial mm. and all of that what happens when say marriage equality passes and the referendum on the 8th passes so we have legal abortion we have legal same sex marriage are you allowed then to have an opinion on on those subjects uh, i think it would be best to in the main steer away from having an opinion and sometimes these things are awkward but i suppose if you believe in this notion of public service broadcasting and that you should be able to stand back for things and that there should be broadcasting that isn't all about one person giving their opinion all the time. Well, there is a small element maybe of if you're in the army, you have to wear the boots and you have to go along with it. Obviously, it's not quite the same as during a referendum campaign. But I, I think it's it's fair enough that... If you start to chip away at it, where where does it end? You know, it's it's it is a difficult one, and like I said, obviously it's not quite the same after the, the white heat of a referendum campaign. But actually, I think by and large, in both of those referendum campaigns, I think the discourse around them was far more civil than a lot of people had predicted. Um, on on every side of the arguments in the main. Obviously, there are always exceptions. But in the main, I that was certainly my experience even of, of, of working, of being on the radio during those campaigns. I didn't feel the same level of hostility or the same venom that, that would have been there 20 years ago. I really, I really genuinely didn't. Yeah, and maybe it was the fact that people's attitudes had had moved on and had evolved that made that possible. Um, just going back to The American Girl, because you mentioned it earlier and I didn't really tell people what it was about, but that was about an American girl coming back, being sent from Boston. She got pregnant by her boyfriend and was sent back by her Irish parents to have the baby in a mother and baby home. In fact, the same mother and baby home that's in the paper. Yeah, it is the same fictional Rack, home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, actually, it's funny. The the um, editor in in London who's publishing this book late on became concerned, better, and said, "It's not real, is it?" And I said, "No, no, no, you're." Real. <laughs> but it was totally understandable. That, so you, well, you make it there, very real. But, I have but to there say. also there were a lot of between mother and baby homes, other residential institutions, county homes, nursing homes. Like there were 
there were a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but when you wrote that, I know that you got a lot of um, feedback from people. So it sort of was a story that people, like I say, are talking about now. There's lots of people who are tracing their mm. uh, birth parents. And I know that some of it inspired the paper bracelet in mm. terms of the, the um, letters and emails that you mm. got about it. There was one email in particular from a woman who contacted me about a, a particular occurrence in The American Girl and I, I, I just kind of dance around it a little because the family involved are a bit wary of publicity because it is diffi- it's difficult for them. But I realised that the woman who was who was helping this family, that, that this wasn't the only family she was helping and that actually heard from her again the other day and that that there were others and that she was doing, she she was, you know, she wasn't in this for money or greater glory. It was just, it was just a thing that she did because she had experience of the system. And um, so in a way, she, there was a little, you know, spark there. I think, I think, I think Helen, to a certain extent, might have, you know, set me. Obviously, she bears no resemblance no. at all to, to Katie, who's a fictional character. But just perhaps that little spark was there. This notion of somebody going out and trying to help other people, and you know, emailing people and saying, "Would you, by any chance, know of X, Y, and Z?" And it is still such a live issue because, like people like Maeve O'Rourke and various people have done great legal work and representation of people from Magdalene Laundries and Mother and Baby Homes. And there is this kind of difficulty accessing information about yourself and the state for reasons that they're saying are, you know, very valid or is withholding certain information that could help people. What do you think about all that? Because you must have done a lot of research to, to sort yeah, of get it, the it, bones you, of the story across. You know, it struck me the other day, I um, with the help of a colleague who works in archives in RTE, I went back and dug out um, some interviews that I did 24 years ago. And I put off doing it because I don't think anybody wants to either read or hear their work from 24 years ago. There is, there isn't there. there there's a certain kind of, oh, you know, that I'm going to go, oh my God. But that was all. You might be pleasantly surprised though as well. But actually, you know what the thing was? I was, not by me, yeah. but by the sheer power of the stories and also by the fact that with a couple of edits you could, could be. you could play it now wow. it was exactly the same the only difference is with this that the main woman who i spoke to had managed to trace and her birth mother and this was down in Bessborough in Cork yeah, wasn't it yeah she had managed to trace her birth mother and then there were two or three other women who hadn't and apart from a couple of things they called for that, that have since happened, like a register through um, a national register where you, you can go and put your name down and, and hopefully that there will be a match. Um, apart from that, and I suppose the, apart from the fact that I also spoke to a nun at the time, and I don't, I don't think you'd be doing that now because it's all mainly done through either the Adoption Authority or TUSLA now. Um, everything they said... If you, if you went and interviewed a similar group of men and women now, they would probably say something similar about how it's just too difficult, and I don't want I don't want to intrude upon her life. I, I you know, I, but there's every chance she might want to know me, and she doesn't know that I'm out here thinking about her all the time. Mm. And I was struck in particular by the woman who had managed to find her birth mother, and. She said, I, I, I'd forgotten this, but as soon as I listened to it again, I remembered her telling the story about 
how when she, before she made contact with her birth mother, she found out who she was and she went and stood outside a family wedding and watched them all. It's just, isn't, isn't it it's just so astonishing? And then she started off, she, she didn't approach her birth mother first. She approached one of the members of the family and the first thing, who would be her half-sister, and the first thing her half-sister said to her was, well, we can't deny you anyway, you're the image of us. And and she was welcomed in. Wow. Um, so in in that way, it was it was actually... It was it was a great story, and also I think maybe at the time, if to think about the other women, it must have been very important for them that she was there because she was able to say to them, "Listen, actually, it isn't necessarily the case that the family will balk at meeting you. Actually, there's every chance that they will say something like, "Well, we can't deny you yeah. anyway. You're the image of us." Yeah. And uh, but it was strange to hear something that to hear people saying pretty much what people say now about that it's just too difficult to reunite. And then you just think of the decades upon decades of, you know, secrecy, of pain, of kind of, you know, you've got on the one hand, you've got women with maybe other families sort of shutting off a whole side of their life that was so Mm. important and probably, you know, uh, shaped them a lot. And then you've got these other younger people trying to find a piece of their lives. And they do sometimes come together, but often it will never be resolved. And the more time goes on, the less likely it is to happen. You know, we were talking talking about tens of thousands of women. Um, I don't know how many are still alive, but obviously it's a dwindling number. You give a very good statistic in the book, which I don't remember, but you might have off the top of your head. I do. Being Rachel English yeah. of Morning Ireland. Which was really striking. But it is striking. It's And the first time I read this statistic, I didn't believe it. So I had to go and hunt its, its provenance. It was that, that in 1967, 97% of children born outside marriage in Ireland were adopted or given up for adoption. So maybe some were fostered, maybe some didn't find permanent homes. But the first time I I read that, I read it in a newspaper report by a brilliant Irish examiner reporter called Conal O'Farrita, who's written a huge amount about this subject. And then I actually interviewed him on Morning Ireland and he said it again. And I thought, well, I've no reason to doubt him, but I would be interested to know where, because his work is so good, I'd be interested to know where it came from. And so it didn't take long to to hunt it down. Um, It was first appeared in a book by the historian Lindsay Erner Byrne, who wrote about um, motherhood in Ireland in the 20th century. And then it also appears in... There is a, there was a wonderful report came out about 18 months ago by um, the Clon Project, which is, is a number of academics and also other people who work in this area who quite reasonably decided that we haven't heard and, you know, that there, there are an awful lot of women haven't had the opportunity to tell their story about being an, inst- an institution. And so they went and did some work. It's, it's an amazing report. It's easily accessible online. And, and again, that statistic appeared. And it's hard, it's hard to get that out of your head, isn't it? That's a lot of people. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Moving on to RTE, where you work and have done for how many years? Uh, more years than you care to remember. Hey, I'll admit say. it, 29. 
<laughs> 30 next year, eh? That's yeah. a big one. Um, lots happened in RTE and we've all heard about the cutbacks and it was sort of a, a you know, a very torrid time there just before Christmas. Gay Byrne died. There was all these um, announcements of cutbacks and things. What's morale like in the place that you've worked in for 29 years? Before Christmas, when those announcements were made, it was it was very strange, and it was it was the only time. I mean, I used to always joke with people when they they asked, "Is Morello an RT?" and I would say, "Always," you know, because <laughs> there, there's always it's any big organisation. Yeah. Like, let's face it, there there are always reasons to complain. Um, but it was the first time that I really felt like. It really was shock, actually. Not that he didn't know that there were serious financial difficulties, but it was a sudden, oh, this is really serious. And this thing that a lot of us have done for a long time and are very, very fond of and very lucky to do, it might not survive. Or certainly if it does, it might not survive in this format, in this way, and and a lot might change. Then you had kind of very quickly afterwards... Um, Gay Byrne's death and then you had sudden death of Marion Finucane and then you had Larry Gogan's death and, and you know like everybody I loved Larry you know he, he really is the one person well not the one person that's not fair but he was absolutely everything people heard about Larry was absolutely true he was like I remember the first time I met him and he said hello to me like I was his equal and I was kind of <laughs> do you know it did have the but you go Hogan, you were you were you were on two FM when I was a child, and you know, and you did just a minute the sixty second quiz. But and then obviously our colleague in the newsroom, um, Keelan Shanley, died on the day of of the election. So it's been it's been a very very it really has been a very strange time. And in a way, if you're working in news, and I think anybody, be it newspaper, radio, TV, would say because of the election and because of everything that's been happening, in a way there perhaps hasn't been enough time even to think about all of this. You know, it's just everything has been a bit manic. Um, it, the mo- I mean, on the day of the sort of two days of the election count, I think most people were thinking about Keelan, thinking how much she would have loved it because she loved a story. Mm. And, and it was such a good story. It, it was, was a different a, election. It like. was such a good story mm. and... You know, she she loved kind of shaking it up a bit and the the shock value of something. So and there and all of that was there, you know, tenfold on the day. And you can't help that, especially somebody who loved live broadcasting and and the you know the drama of it all. The best day, you know, the best day there is going to be in any year, which mm-hmm. is the day with all the drama. So yeah, it's it's the last two or three months have been have been quite something. All right. And uh, I should go back to your 15,000 words of your book, which I think is about a morning news show, which is something that you're very familiar with. Are they all quaking in their boots, Rachel? Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Since this emer- has emerged, um, I, I've had yeah quite a few funny comments thrown my way about people wondering how scared they should be and jokes about solicitors' letters. Uh, <laughs> Um, no, I should say there are two main characters and only one of them um, works on a morning news show, but he does. And actually quite early on, he gets suspended and the story um, spins out from there. But I, uh, 
oh, I hope to write it one day. So but do I, so <laughs> do I. I hope to read it. Um, going back to you as a reader and a writer in childhood, you were born in England, mm. which I think is great because you're English, Rachel English, born in England. I know, I know, home. even though that's an Irish name, obviously, that's that's a kind of Limerick Tipperary name. Like all the Englishes in the main are in Limerick and Tipperary. And whenever I see one from that neck of the woods and somebody says, are you related? I always just say yes, because the chances are that we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, what time, what age were you when you came over? I was four. Um, so my mother is English. My father went to, my father emigrated at the end of the 1950s. He, like, like an awful lot of people, mm. Um, and he went to Lincolnshire, um, which in some ways would have been relatively unusual because most people went to Birmingham or Manchester or London or Liverpool. Yeah. Um, and he met my mother there. And um, and then in the 1970s, she, I think, you know, she may have been to Ireland once before that, twice at the most. Um they they came back to Ireland. How did your dad lure her back? Because, I mean, it sounds like you, she was sort of settled in her home country. Yeah. And had one, at least one child there. Anyway. Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. And um, now, now, to be fair to her, she, she was... She was very adventurous. Like, she'd lived in Australia for okay. a couple of years herself, which, which at the time would have been yeah. relatively unusual. Um, do you know, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, I think to begin with... When she got to Ireland, well, she, she is from a small village in rural Lincolnshire. So perhaps, and, and we moved at that time to a village in County Limerick. We were living outside Adair. So maybe it wasn't that big of an upheaval. But those were also the years, and it's easy to forget now, when... A, it took you six months to get a phone. Um, so you weren't going to be contacting your family every day of the week. You weren't going to be sending any texts. And also when airplane tickets were incredibly expensive. And my memory uh, uh, as a child is like she only went home maybe every three years or so, which is when you think of it now, it's it's um, would be really unusual. But then that that was just the way things were. So so she was even even though she's you know, and then we moved to Shannon, which is obviously there's an airport in the town, but it she didn't get to see that much of home for a long time, and uh, and she, they moved then to Shannon in the mid 1970s, and she always said, well, she intended on staying for six months, and you know, more than 40 years later, she's still there, so um, I wouldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, because it kind of resonates with me because my mum was English, and I was wondering about the luring back to Ireland because that's what my dad did. He was very much going, oh, there's he was talking about Dublin, there's mountains, there's the sea, it's the most magical place, you know. That's how he got her back, but she did love it. She and she would be more now Irish than the Irish themselves my all those mother, years later. Yeah, my mum would be the same, I think, as well. And I mean, she wouldn't. And even members of her family now who come over would have a huge attachment to Ireland. And she obviously she loves where she's from, but she gets a bit frustrated because I think she's now she is now so Irish say things like when when it came to Brexit oh, she, yeah. she was a bit well their problem is they don't talk about <laughs> politics enough because you see she's she's been living in a country for more than 40 years where people talk about politics all the time and she says that she finds now that that's the biggest difference between say her family members in 
England in Lincolnshire and my father's family who would, you know, talk about nothing but <laughs> politics. The, the, um, and not even in a party political way, more in the, well, did you see your man on primetime? Oh, he's some spoofer. You know, and that they would start off a conversation like that and that that, she feels, is one of the big differences. Yeah. Well, what about you as a child? Because um, I think for a lot of young people, if you're interested in words and writing, you kind of, the idea of writing a book can be there, but not necessarily something you act on. But journalism was something you were interested in early enough. Yeah, I, I it was. And I don't know your own experience, but mine was that, while I won't say I was discouraged at school, there was a bit of scepticism um, because it w- it was seen as a difficult to get into unless you knew somebody, and b just kind of a bit chancy generally, yeah. and um, so there was a bit notiony. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, and and I remember being told in particular that well, you know, I can't even remember the girl's name now. Well, you know, there was so and so left here two years ago, and she wanted to do that, and it didn't work out for her, and she was very good at English. And uh, <laughs> that's lovely. <laughs> There's a bit of encouragement, but I, I know it shouldn't be fair now. The career guidance teacher who was brilliant in many ways, but. If if you have, I think as well, if you have one young person who keeps going to say, no, this is what I want to do. I'm determined. This is what I want to do. Um, so it was seen as a bit notionsy. Yes, it was. It was seen as a bit. Where did you get that idea from? <laughs> and but where did you get that idea? I was just always the child who read the paper and I think, or, or listened to the radio. And I think it's unusual to find a journalist who wasn't that child, um, who didn't, you know, yeah, I, I just always liked reading the papers. I, I always liked listening to the radio. And um, we only had the two TV channels, so that wasn't, there wasn't as much. But I do remember certain things like, you know, I did watch a certain amount of news. I remember in particular Marion Finucane's programme in the 1980s when I was at school, the television programme in particular. I think it may have been on a Monday night. And I remember thinking, God, that'd be a Great job, you know. <laughs> so I was, um, and and I, then there was a, yeah. I ended up doing communications in DCU or NIHE Dublin, as it was then, mainly because in the sort of true uh, career guidance way of things. And to be fair to the teacher, she was probably right. She said, "Well, now." I'm looking at how many points you're likely to be at. You'd be wasting those doing a certificate in journalism. Because <laughs> do you remember at that time, there yeah. weren't journalism So courses. it was a compliment, really. She was saying, you're going to do really well. Don't waste it on some crappy old little course. Yeah. yeah. So because at the time, there weren't any journalism courses, apart from the course in Rath Minds, which is a brilliant course, of course. So I ended, I ended up uh, going to uh, DCU and I loved it. I loved every single minute of it. Like I had the best class. It was the best experience. Yeah. And then you ended up with your job in RTE. I did. After a bit of a detour, I worked in local radio for a while, which I loved, but I was very lonely for Dublin, even though I was going back home um, to Clare. I really missed all my friends in Dublin who I thought were having a great time. You know, as it turned out, like they were all on the dole and miserable. (laughs) But, you know, I was convinced that, you know, it was bright lights, big city still. And that, you know, and that I was attending county council meetings in Ennis and missing all the fun. I should have stayed longer in Clare FM. I didn't. I worked briefly in PR. I was awful at it. Awful, awful, awful. um, couldn't take the client seriously, just had totally <laughs> the wrong attitude. As in fairness, like I was only 22, mm. you know, and it's very hard at that age to, 
I think you have a certain kind of, you know, raised eyebrow about everything. At Your that tolerance age. is a bit yeah, low. Yeah, yeah. And you sort of leave the room and go, oh, right. <laughs> and um, so I, and, and then I was, I was fortunate to get the job in RTE through, and I'll say this because people always say, who did you know? I didn't know anybody. Yeah. They advertised and, you know, most people who certainly in news, who work in news, got a job because it was advertised. Not, yeah, not, in those days, there was a lot of just coming in from the cold, whereas it is, a, but it is an industry where you kind of, a lot of people do know people. <laughs> I didn't know anyone either, so it's interesting when you don't come from that, you kind of are a bit more, oh God, I've really got to do this. I can't rely on anything or anybody. Yeah, and I, I didn't. I didn't know anybody, but I was fortunate to start work at the same time as a lot of other people. I think there were about fifteen of us started within the space of a couple of months. It was a time, and this seems so different to now. It was a time when news was expanding, um, when. You know, the 6-1 news was a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, do you remember when there used to be any kind of 20 minutes of news? That Yeah. And there were there were lots of other bits and pieces that were, you know, the schedule was expanding all the time. So there actually were So it was a great time to be there, yeah. It was, even though, you know, no, I don't think anybody leaving school in the 1980s, the late 1980s, would have imagined that it was going to be a good time. But yeah. as it turned out, by the early 90s, Things were changing a lot, mm. and uh, you know, as as a few of us say in the newsroom now, at least we'll always have the nineties. <laughs> um, now, the other thing that's come out of RT, apart from brilliant broadcasting, is some writers like yourself. So we had Kathleen McMahon getting a big deal, and Sinead Crowley, and you were sort of beavering away quietly when they these successes were happening. What is it in the water, first of all? But also, did you kind of see them as inspiring? <laughs> um, Yes, I did, certainly with Kathleen and I was writing at that time. I still didn't say anything even to her um, because I did. I just wasn't confident enough about it. I don't think anybody is when they're writing a first novel or when they just start writing short stories or something. So, but yes, it is. I think that's one of the things about writing, unlike, say, lots of other jobs, is just because one person gets a book deal. It doesn't stop you from getting it. And, you know, Claudia Carroll has this great line about it, who obviously is also an actress. And she says, you know, if there is a part in something, there is only one part, only one actress can play that part. But more than one author can write a book. And so, yes, actually, there is a certain extent to which if you see somebody um, doing well, and I think in particular it works in Ireland, maybe not so much in the sort of books I write in recent years. But have you noticed the way recently there are so many women crime writers in Ireland? And I do think that maybe a couple being really successful, because um, you have, you know, Liz Nugent and Patricia Gibney and Joe Spain and, and several more. I, I the list is 20, very long. Tana yeah, French and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think that, I think certainly that goes to illustrate, you know, for people who are interested in writing and maybe get a bit disheartened when they see other people getting a deal or whatever, that actually that's not a bad thing. It is, it is good news. Mm. And that it does mean, it does make it perhaps slightly more likely that there would be interest in your story because if you have writers like like the four we've just mentioned and there, there's another probably 10 we could mention at the moment on top of, on top of that, that 
it does make it slightly more likely that there would be interest in what you're writing. Uh, you were very uh, disciplined in that. You kept it very quiet because some people can't, you know, stop themselves from talking about these things. But you did keep it quiet and then you were, you sent it away and you got interest in it and it all kind of happened. Were you surprised? Um yeah, I was very surprised. I was, yeah, I, I, I really was. And I, it did mean sort of lead to a situation where I did have to, you know, bring my colleagues together and say, no, I swear I'm not making this up. <laughs> but thing is, I wrote this book and I was going to tell you about it and then I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. But anyway, there'll be, there'll be, a, there'll be a thing in the paper tomorrow <laughs> about it. And um, so, yeah, and uh, like obviously I got all the dark horse stuff after that and you know is there anything else you've not been telling us about but I was yeah I was very I was very apprehensive about that first book and it I know people say it never gets easier but perhaps it gets ever so slightly easier as you go along that you have slightly more confidence in something and and feel less less of a need to 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 sort of shy away at the very mention of it. And the paper bracelet is your, how many books later? Fifth, Fifth book, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I, yeah, I never imagined that there would be five and, you know, touch wood, there, there will be six. Like, I have started the sixth one, but only in a very, you know, a very kind of sloppy, rudimentary sort of way. But I have mm. started it, yeah. And listen, tell us about you outside of writing and outside of RT. What are you into? What do you do? What are your, what do you do for fun, Rachel English? <laughs> What do I do for fun? I, I do like sport and I was never very good at it. You know, I played camogie very badly when I was at school and, you know, like an awful lot of girls gave up at 14, which is a really, really stupid thing to do. And I think that is probably less likely to happen now because girls are encouraged more to keep on playing now. But I have always liked sport. With the way things have been over the past two or three months between the book and work, I haven't got to anything but I do like I do find something very relaxing about going to in particular hurling or Gaelic football my husband's father was from Tyrone so he supported the Tyrone footballers which in Dublin isn't always a popular thing to do I'm always the lone voice saying (laughs) but I quite like Tyrone but um, and I and I in hurling I support obviously my own county, Clare, so um, who are doing okay at the moment, actually, in the league. But um, yeah, I find I find something very relaxing about that. And I like I like the crowds at matches. I like I like the banter. I like and the other thing, I think for people who don't go to GAA matches, and the one thing I always say to people is there are so many more women than you would expect. Certainly, I went I went to a soccer international not that long ago and I was stunned how male it was. Whereas in the GAA, and it's not just like players, girlfriends and mothers and everything, there are genuinely an awful lot of, of young girls mm. in particular who, um, who go to hurling and football and obviously increasingly to women's football and to camogie as well. And it does tend to be more of a sort of a family bantery atmosphere. Not that there isn't a great atmosphere at the soccer. It's just, it's a lot more male. And I was taken aback by that. I thought it would have changed, but because it had been a while since I'd been to a soccer international, but it hasn't. And are you a disciplined kind of writer? Because you're on your sixth one now. 
Um, do you kind of you're you're able to go part time? That's what writing has done for you. You're not you only do yeah. how many days a week? If you only do two days yeah. a week, I'm you're hardly learned. there. I know. Well, I've done more recently, to yeah. be fair, because because of the times that are in it. Um, yeah, a lot more recently, but it, um, yes, but I'm disciplined because I genuinely enjoy it. And if I didn't, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be, and I probably wouldn't do it at all. If the day ever came where I found that it was a drag or where I felt under a huge amount of pressure to write a certain amount of words a day or that that I that I really yeah that I felt that, that I felt it was very pressurized um like bringing out a book is 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 kind of pressurized but but writing it shouldn't I think shouldn't feel like that there should be a certain amount of joy in it and if there wasn't I don't think I'd do it. And what feedback have you had so far? Because it's in the world now; it's in the shop. Yeah, it's 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 been it's been very kind so far. I mean, you can't. There's there's you know obviously the day is going to come where you're going to read something and go oh, well maybe they have a point or whatever. But so far, yeah, it's 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 been lovely and people have been very kind and sure. But it is it's. Very early days. I'll see. I'll see how it goes. I don't want to say anything to jinx it. <laughs> Bit superstitious like that. I am the person who salutes the magpies and <laughs> yeah, touches the wood. And I know it's stupid, but I do it. Well, I think it's a brilliant book. I, I it is one of those. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's a page turner. You're really dying to find out how all the threads come back together. Um, and Katie's a great character. And I, as you say, because she's that bit older and she still has such a life and um, lots going on with her. It's, it's, she's a great read. So congratulations on your fifth book. Thanks so and, much. And uh, I hope you come and really talk to us again for the sixth one. Hopefully and for so. the one where you expose all the secrets of Morning Ireland. Oh, that's I can't the wait. one to look forward to. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks to my guest, Rachel English, and her book is called Paper Bracelet, and I really couldn't recommend it more. If you want to get in touch with us, do so on Instagram or Twitter at IT Women's Podcast, and you can email us on the Women's Podcast at IrishTimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. That's all we have time for. Stay safe, and thank you very much for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.